So that's Acts chapter 17, page 1113. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Do keep your Bibles open and let's pray as we come to look at that passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that we can find it in Scripture. Thank you for this example of Paul uh, teaching from it. We pray that as we look at it this evening, your spirit would be at work in our hearts, uh, helping us to receive this message, uh, to understand it, and to live uh, in accordance with it. Amen. I wonder if this quote is familiar to you. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. So begins Charles Dickens' classic novel, A Tale of Two Cities. But reading those words and seeing that title, I can't help but think that Dickens must have been reading this passage from Scripture at Home Group uh, the night before he sat down to write. Because while the Dickensian two cities were London and Paris, here too we have a tale of two cities, the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. We have the best of times and the worst of times recorded. Foolishness, belief, incredulity, light, darkness, hope, and despair. What's more, A Tale of Two Cities is set against the backdrop of the French Revolution. And our passage today, as well, is set against the backdrop of a revolution. It's a slightly different kind of revolution, but a revolution nonetheless. Don't know what you make of the picture that's coming up on the screen. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus, but in the style of the famous red and black uh, picture of the revolutionary Che Guevara. 
It's certainly making quite the statement about uh, Jesus and his revolutionary nature. Maybe you're more used to thinking of Jesus as the, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild of the old hymn. I don't know if we naturally think of Jesus as a revolutionary, but he did start a revolution. We see it here in our passage today. At the end of verse 6, the enemies of Paul and Silas say this of them. They say, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. Another Bible translation renders it, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, as we'll think about later on, Paul and Silas's detractors were trying to uh, make them sound bad, but there's a sense in which what they said was really very much true, a sense in which they were indeed going around turning the world upside down with this extraordinary, revolutionary, topsy-turvy message of Jesus. And if we're followers of Jesus today, uh, then we're called to join in the revolution ourselves. Uh, It carries on today. Our vision at St. Mark's this year of helping people come home to God is part of the revolution. And we get a glimpse of what it looks like to be one of Jesus' revolutionaries in our passage uh, as we get this tale of two cities as the revolution comes to Thessalonica and Berea. We're going to compare and contrast the two cities, uh, seeing the similarity and and the difference between what happens when when the revolution comes to them, turning them upside down. Starting with how they're similar, uh, we see that the major similarity between what happens in these two cities is Paul's approach. And from that, we see that Jesus' revolutionaries, as Jesus' revolutionaries, were to stay on message. Look at what happens when Paul arrives in Thessalonica. We see it in verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now scan down to verse 10, we see what happens in Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. It's like clockwork. In both cities, Paul arrives and begins speaking. It wasn't just in those two cities either. At the beginning of verse 2, as was his custom. This was just what Paul did. This was his MO. It was how he rolled. But what did he do exactly? Well, uh, he reasoned, verse 2. He explained, proved, and proclaimed, verse 3. He persuaded, verse 4, and he preached, verse verse 13. Reasoned, proclaimed, uh, explained, proved, persuaded, and preached. Try saying that ten times fast. And uh, he did it all from God's word, uh, from the scriptures. What he was actually speaking about when he was doing those things was the Messiah, He was speaking mostly to Jewish people and to what uh, this passage calls God-fearing Greeks, uh, Greek people who'd come to worship the same God that the Jews worshipped, but without actually uh, converting to Judaism. So he went to what they knew. He went to the Old Testament, uh, but he had a surprise for them there. His hearers would have had no problem with the concept of the Messiah, God's anointed one who he promised uh, throughout the Old Testament he would send to save his people. But they'd have been surprised to hear that he would have to suffer and die and rise from the dead. They had in mind someone who would sweep in and save the Jewish people from oppressing nations and lead them in freedom and victory. Suffering and death didn't enter into their thinking about the Messiah at all. But it should have, because it's there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament says that the Messiah would have to suffer and then rise from the dead. And that's what Paul was doing as he explained it to them, persuading them of the truth and proving that it was the case from Scripture. 
We've actually already seen this happen in Acts on the day of Pentecost. We've been thinking about the fact that it's Pentecost Sunday today. And at, on the day of Pentecost, Peter did the same thing from Psalm, chapter, uh, from Psalm 16, which says, You will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. We don't know what passages Paul used, uh, but what we know is that he reasoned with them from Scripture, showing them that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Paul spoke, and he spoke with intent. He didn't do it just because he liked hearing the sound of his own voice. He did it to persuade people of the truth of what he was saying. And in doing so, uh, he was following Jesus' example. Many of us will know that the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And at the end of Luke's Gospel, uh, in chapter 24, we see Jesus, after his resurrection, meeting two of his friends on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that they were kept from recognizing him. But Jesus said this to them in verse uh, 24. He said to them, "'How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken.'" Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Paul wasn't a rogue agent uh, in this revolution. He was dead on message, following the example of the great revolutionary himself, following the example of Jesus. Paul was following Jesus' example, and we in turn should follow his example. As the revolution continues today, we're to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with people, and we'll need to speak in order to do so. Reasoning, explaining, proving, proclaiming, uh, uh, persuading, and preaching. You might have heard the, the saying attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, not only did St. Francis almost certainly not say that, it's really not helpful advice either. Uh, It suggests that we can share the gospel with people uh, without speaking to them, simply with our actions. But the fact is that we just can't. Now, in order to stop a, a riot in here like there was in Thessalonica, let me be clear that actions are really important. Uh, Paul himself later wrote a letter to the Thessalonians about the time that he'd spent with them. And we read in Thessalonians that he writes, Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. And later in the letter, You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul and his team lived good lives among the Thessalonians, uh, but he differentiates that from the gospel message which he proclaimed to them. Their lives would certainly have lent credence to the message that he was sharing with them, but Paul's approach to the gospel sharing is verbal, and ours should be as well. Uh, Looking after the environment and looking after people's physical needs and, and coming to church on a Sunday are not the gospel. They're good things for Christians to do, and we might even want to argue that they, that they are Christian responsibilities, but they aren't the gospel. We could bring CO2 emissions down to zero and eradicate poverty and faithfully attend church every Sunday, and all of those things are wonderful things to do. Be about doing those things if you can. But we could do all of those things without ever helping anyone come home to God. Like Paul, we need to speak the gospel to people, we need to speak of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we need to be experts. Uh, It's completely fine to answer a question with, 
look, I don't know. Just be really honest about it. I don't know the answer to that question. I'd love to go away and find out and come back and tell you. It's a great way to create a future opportunity. We don't need all the answers, but we do need to speak of Jesus. A friend of mine was telling me the other day that they were on a, a bus trip. It was a kind of a two-hour bus trip, and they ended up in a long conversation with the person next to them uh, on this two-hour bus trip and ended up telling them about Jesus. He's a big part of their life, so it's perfectly natural uh, that they would go on to tell this person about Jesus. It's as simple as that. It doesn't need to be dramatic. It's like the stories we've been hearing from people feeding back uh, about the past week and thy kingdom come. They, they're not amazing stories in one sense. I mean, I don't want to offend you guys who shared. They're wonderful stories. I'm really, really happy to hear them. Fantastic in one sense, but not, not unusual. They're everyday conversations about Jesus. Wonderful that Jesus is being spoken of, but in a, in, in a sense, normal. And we are to be speaking about Jesus in that way. It's, we're, we're talking about Jesus and hoping that the people that we're speaking to will believe uh, the, the truth that we're telling them. It's what Paul did uh, in Thessalonica. At the end of verse 3, having explained and proved that the Messiah of the Old Testament would have to suffer and rise from the dead, he proclaimed Jesus to them. He said, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. That's the message. Jesus alone can save. It would be tempting to share a different message or uh, to share a slightly more palatable message, and some do. Uh, Maybe it would be tempting just to change one single word and to say, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is a Messiah, one of many ways you can come home to God. It would be tempting to share a different message, but we're not to do that, because the message of the gospel is the only message that can ultimately save. We're we're not to pressurize or trick or manipulate people into believing. Maybe some of those words, persuade, proclaim, prove, preach, uh, sounded a little bit intense to you, But there's a difference between pressurizing people and persuading people. We're not to pressurize or trick or manipulate, but we are to reason, explain, and persuade. And we're not alone as we do that. In this account of what happened in Thessalonica, we only really get one side of the story, in a sense. We only see the human work that's going on in the revolution. But there was more going on than that, and we see that that's the case again in the letter that Paul writes to the Thessalonians after he's left them. In Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 4 to 5, it says this, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. It wasn't just Paul at work in Thessalonica. The gospel didn't come to them simply with words, although we've seen that words are necessary. The gospel also came with power and the Holy Spirit. Even as Paul reasoned, explained, proved, proclaimed, persuaded, and preached, the Holy Spirit was at work in power, bringing conviction. We're to stay on message, we're to speak the gospel to people, but that won't be enough to bring conviction in and of itself. The Holy Spirit must be at work in order for people to be convinced of the truth of what we're telling them. Uh, I think that should be a great encouragement and a great comfort to us. It's an encouragement because we are not working alone as we share the gospel with others. This Jesus, who we are speaking about, is actually working alongside us by the power of his Spirit as we proclaim him. The very one we proclaim is working in those we are proclaiming him to. 
As we talk about the one who has the power to bring people from death to life, he is potentially working in them at that very moment to do just that. It's a wonderful encouragement for us as we share the gospel with people that Jesus is at work as well uh, by his Holy Spirit. But it's also a comfort. It's a comfort because while it's our responsibility to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus with people, what happens next is not actually up to us. We can, we can talk about Jesus until we're blue in the face, but unless the Spirit moves and brings conviction, uh, there will be no conviction that what we're saying is true. So while we will certainly want uh, people to believe what we say, while we, while we should pray uh, that they will believe, while we are trying to persuade people of the truth of it, whether they believe or not is not ultimately up to us. Paul's success as a revolutionary did not depend on the response he got. He did what he came to do. He preached Christ. And it's the same with us. We can rest assured that we are being obedient to God as we share his message with people, regardless of their response. We haven't failed in sharing the gospel if people don't believe it. That bit's not up to us. Uh, That's out of our hands. We are to share the message with people, to stay on message. And their response uh, is, is, is not down to us. The response, though, is what we're going to come to talk to, is what we're going to come to talk about now. And having thought about the similarity between the two cities uh, in this revolutionary tale, we now think about the differences. The similarity was Paul's approach, and we saw that we're to stay on message. The big difference is the response, and we see that we're to expect variety. Now, there's a sense in which there is no difference at all here either in the responses in the two cities, and in which it's actually another similarity. Uh, Dickens says in the opening of A Tale of Two Cities, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, or unbelief, if you want to be a little less fancy than Dickens, which I know some of us probably do want to be. And um, we see here as well that there was belief and unbelief in both cities. But while Luke does mention belief in Thessalonica, have a look down at verse 4. It says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. He talks about belief in Thessalonica, but what he really focuses on in Thessalonica is is unbelief, while in Berea we see much more what, what a believing response looks like. In Thessalonica, there were those who believed, but there were those who who didn't believe as well. And it seems that in Thessalonica, they didn't do unbelief quietly. Have a look down at verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. While some of the Jews believed, others were jealous, uh, perhaps of the fact that Paul and Silas were bringing people over to their cause. And they don't just sit around and grumble about their jealousy either. Uh, They act on it. They grab some reprobates from the marketplace, form a mob, and start a riot. Uh, It sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? But keep in mind that what we're talking about here is dramatic. It's a revolution. Paul and Silas were turning the world upside down, and we can expect some pretty extreme reactions. They uh, they were bent on stopping Paul and Silas, so they rocked up to Jason's house, uh, where they'd been staying, uh, to drag Paul and Silas out before the mob, and goodness knows what they would have done to them if they'd been successful. But Paul and Silas weren't there. They didn't find them. And so instead, they dragged Jason, the owner of the house, and some of the other believers before the city officials instead. 
we see the charges that they bring against them partway down verse 6. They say, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. They tell enough truth about them uh, to, to make it believable, but mix in enough falsehood to get them into real trouble. It's true that Paul and Silas's message uh, was revolutionary, but it's not a political message, as they suggest. They say Paul and Silas were defying Caesar in saying that there was another king, but they, they actually aren't, uh, not if they were staying on message anyway. Jesus taught people to give to Caesar what was Caesar's, and to God what was God's. And Paul himself taught people to be subject to their governing authorities in his letter to the Romans. Uh, as an aside on, on this for a moment, in a week where we are on the way to a new uh, PM, uh, where we've hosted a very controversial political leader and Brexit still feels completely up in the air, it's worth us remembering uh, that, the revol that the revolution that Jesus leads is not a political one. Yes, uh, our, our Christian beliefs should influence um, our political opinions. I would want them to inform our, our thoughts about politics. But there isn't one political party line for Christians. And that should mean that we are able to be really gracious uh, to those who we disagree with, particularly other Christians on political views. That's a side over. Um, I guess we might think that it's unlikely that this response that we see in Thessalonica would be elicited by our sharing the gospel today. But there are places in the world where people sharing the gospel gets just that response. Think up on the screen. Uh, there's a picture of a man named Nazir who's in prison in Iran as we speak, having been arrested when 30 intelligence officers raided an engagement party out uh, near Tehran. He was accused of undermining national security by establishing an illegal house church network. That was in 2016, and uh, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison, where he still is today. And we should certainly be remembering and praying for our Christian brothers and sisters in those positions. I found out about um, Nazir on the Release International website, where you can go to find out more about him and other people like him, if you would like to, to pray for them and see uh, what else you can do to be involved. Uh, but just because we don't face that exact kind of persecution ourselves, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect a variety of, of responses as we speak about Jesus. It's true that it's unlikely uh, that people who don't believe us will go out into the streets and start a riot, uh, but angry mobs are still easy enough to find uh, in our society. They are a dime a dozen on social media and not at all afraid of violently opposing anything that they disagree with. You might know from experience. As we share the gospel, we can expect, as happened when Paul shared it, that some won't believe and that some of those who don't believe will be really angry at the message. It's a revolutionary message, after all. We need to be prepared for that kind of response. We may need to ask ourselves if we're willing to put the message before our own reputations, because staying on message might re mean our reputations don't stay intact. Paul's didn't. He went from before his conversion, uh, from being a Pharisee who, who wrote about the place, putting prisons, uh, putting prisons, putting Christians in prison, and uh, probably getting great approval from his colleagues as a result, to being someone who spent his time being smuggled out of cities under cover of darkness by people from a minority faith group. It's not dignified, but Paul put the message first. He humbled himself in order to proclaim Jesus. 
And we may, be, we may need to be willing to humble ourselves as we expect a variety of responses to the gospel as we share it with others. Some will not believe, and we should be ready for that. But wonderfully, a bit of a relief after thinking about that, some will believe. Having seen the response of those who don't believe, highlighted in Thessalonica, we see the difference between the two cities, uh, as the response of those who do believe is highlighted in Berea. We see things are different in Berea right from the get-go. Have a look down at verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. The Berean Jews were different right from the start. They were of more noble character, we're told, than those in Thessalonica. Even, though, uh, even before they believed the message that Paul gave them, they received it with eagerness and went away to examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I think there's an example for us and an encouragement for us here. There's an example for us to follow. We should be like the Bereans uh, when it comes to the Scripture. It's great that so many of you have your Bibles open uh, in front of you as I preach to you from it. Whatever you do, don't take my word for it. Uh, Yes, I I have worked hard on it. I'll uh, reassure you of that, and I've prayed about it, and I try to be faithful in what I'm saying about it. But be sure to check in, in Scripture that what I'm saying is actually true. Check for yourself. I'm encouraged by those house groups that are uh, following the sermon series in their, in their home groups. They hear the sermon on Sunday and on Tuesdays, they go away to examine the scriptures. Is what was said actually true? It's a, an example for us to follow. Uh, we're to be like the Bereans, those who receive the message with great eagerness and examine the scriptures day by day to see if it's true. Uh, you may be here this evening and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus. Let me say that it's great to to have you with us, but urge you as well to respond as the Bereans did. If the good news of Jesus is true, then it's the best news you will ever hear. It's worth doing some investigation into to find out if it's true. There's nothing to lose and potentially everything to gain if it is true, which I'm claiming uh, that it is. The Bereans are an example to us but they're also an encouragement, which is, uh, there's, there's also an encouragement, which is that as we share the gospel with people, we can know that it stands up to scrutiny. We don't have to scramble uh, to make up for massive plot holes in the story. It's been said of Christianity that a character of true religion is that it suffers itself to be examined into and its claims to be so decided upon. Let me say that once more. A character of the true religion is that it suffers itself to be examined into and its claims to be so decided upon. It's what we do as we invite people to come along to Alpha. We're inviting them to come and ask their questions and examine the claims of Christianity. It's what I know a number of uh, people in our church family do as they read the Bible uh, with friends who are not uh, yet followers of Jesus. Some of them even do it by Skype uh, if they live too far away to do it in person. We can invite people to examine the claims of Christianity by looking at the source material in God's Word in the Bible. And we can be confident that that it holds up. And we can be hopeful that it will elicit the same response in them as it did in the Bereans as they examined the Scriptures day by day. Have a look at verse 12. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. There's a revolution going on. And we're called to be a part of it. 
to be those who are involved in turning the world upside down as we share the revolutionary message of Jesus. But his is the only message uh, that will bring this about. So we are to stay on message, uh, faithfully sharing the good news as it's been passed down to us ever since Paul himself shared it. And that message is powerful. It's going to elicit all kinds of responses. So we're to be ready for that as we're taught to be by the responses to those who originally shared it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the good news of Jesus. Thank you that we have the news of his suffering and death and resurrection in our place uh, so that we can come home to you. Uh, and have that relationship with you. But thank you that you've not only given us that message, you've also given us that message to share with others. Help us to be doing that faithfully. Help us to be speaking of Jesus uh, to those we come across. Help us to be thinking about who we might share the message of Jesus with as we come across them in our day-to-day -day lives, and give us the boldness and the confidence to speak to them of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you already know what their responses will be. Uh, thank you that we can be confident of that. And please, would you be preparing us for, for those responses, whatever they may be. In Jesus' name, amen.